Part First of Nostromo by Joseph Conrad The Silver of the Mine Chapter 6, Section 2 This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan Part First, The Silver of the Mine Chapter 6, Section 2 The latest phase in the history of the mine Mrs Gould knew from personal experience. It was, in essence, the history of her married life. The mantle of the Goulds' hereditary position in Sulaco had descended amply upon her little person, but she would not allow the peculiarities of the strange garment to weigh down the vivacity of her character, which was the sign of no mere mechanical sprightliness, but of an eager intelligence. It must not be supposed that Mrs Gould's mind was masculine. A woman with a masculine mind is not a being of superior efficiency, she is simply a phenomenon of imperfect differentiation, interestingly barren and without importance. Donna Amelia's intelligence, being feminine, led her to achieve the conquest of Sulaco simply by lighting the way for her unselfishness and sympathy. She could converse charmingly, but she was not talkative. The wisdom of the heart, having no concern with the erection or demolition of theories any more than with the defence of prejudices, has no random words at its command. The words it pronounces have the value of acts of integrity, tolerance and compassion. A woman's true tenderness, like the true virility of man, is expressed in action of a conquering kind. The ladies of Sulaco adored Mrs Gould. They still look upon me as something of a monster, Mrs Gould had said pleasantly to one of the three gentlemen from San Francisco she had to entertain in her new Sulaco house, just about a year after her marriage. They were her first visitors from abroad, and they had come to look at the San Tome mine. She jested most agreeably, they thought, and Charles Gould, besides knowing thoroughly what he was about, had shown himself a real hustler. These facts caused them to be well disposed towards his wife. An unmistakable enthusiasm, pointed by a slight flavour of irony, made her talk of the mine absolutely fascinating to her visitors, and provoked them to grave and indulgent smiles in which there was a good deal of deference. Perhaps had they known how much she was inspired by an idealistic view of success, they would have been amazed at the state of her mind as the Spanish-American ladies had been amazed at the tireless activity of her body. She would, in her own words, have been, for them, something of a monster. However, the Goulds were, in essentials, a reticent couple, and their guests departed without the suspicion of any other purpose but simple profit in the working of a silver mine. Mrs Gould had out her own carriage with two white mules to drive them down to the harbour, whence the series was to carry them off into the Olympus of plutocrats. Captain Mitchell had snatched at the occasion of leave-taking to remark to Mrs Gould in a low confidential mutter, This marks an epoch. Mrs Gould loved the patio of her Spanish house. A broad flight of stone steps was overlooked silently from a niche in the wall by a Madonna in blue robes, with the crowned child sitting on her arm. Subdued voices ascended in the early mornings from the paved well of the quadrangle, with the stamping of horses and mules led out in pairs to drink at the cistern. 
A tangle of slender bamboo stems drooped its narrow, blade-like leaves over the square pool of water, and the fat coachman sat muffled up on the edge, holding lazily the ends of halters in his hand. Barefooted servants passed to and fro, issuing from dark, low doorways below. Two laundry girls with baskets of washed linen, the baker with a tray of bread made for the day, Leonarda, her own camarista, bearing high up, swung from her hand, raised above her raven-black head, a bunch of starched underskirts dazzlingly white in the slant of sunshine. Then the old porter would hobble in, sweeping the flagstones, and the house was ready for the day. All the lofty rooms on three sides of the quadrangle opened into each other and into the corridor, with its wrought iron railings and a border of flowers, whence, like the lady of the medieval castle, she could witness from above all the departures and arrivals of the casa, to which the sonorous arched gateway lent an air of stately importance. She had watched her carriage roll away with the three guests from the north. She smiled. Their three arms went up simultaneously to their three hats. Captain Mitchell, the fourth, in attendance, had already begun a pompous discourse. Then she lingered. She lingered, approaching her face to the cluster of flowers here and there, as if to give time to her thoughts to catch up with her slow footsteps along the straight vista of the corridor. A fringed Indian hammock from Aroa, gay with coloured featherwork, had been swung judiciously in a corner that caught the early sun, for the mornings are cool in Salako. The cluster of Flor de Noche Buena blazed in great masses before the open glass doors of the reception rooms. A big green parrot, brilliant like an emerald in a cage that flashed like gold, screamed out ferociously, Viva Costa Guana! then called twice mellifluously, Leonada! Leonada! in imitation of Mrs. Gould's voice, and suddenly took refuge in immobility and silence. Mrs. Gould reached the end of the gallery and put her head through the door of her husband's room. Charles Gould, with one foot on a low wooden stool, was already strapping his spurs. He wanted to hurry back to the mine. Mrs. Gould, without coming in, glanced about the room. One tall, broad bookcase with glass doors was full of books, but in the other, without shelves and lined with red bays, were arranged firearms, Winchester carbines, revolvers, a couple of shotguns, and even two pairs of double-barrelled holster pistols. Between them, by itself, upon a strip of scarlet velvet, hung an old cavalry sabre, once the property of Don Enrique Gould, the hero of the Occidental province, presented by Don José Avellanos, the hereditary friend of the family. Otherwise, the plastered white walls were completely bare, except for a watercolour sketch of the San Tomé mountain, the work of Donna Emilia herself. In the middle of the red-tiled floor stood two long tables littered with plans and papers, a few chairs, and a glass showcase containing specimens of ore from the mine. Mrs Gould, looking at all these things in turn, wondered aloud why the talk of these wealthy and enterprising men discussing the prospects, the working and the safety of the mine rendered her so impatient and uneasy, whereas she could talk of the mine by the hour with her husband with unwearied interest and satisfaction. And dropping her eyelids expressively, she added, 
What do you feel about it, Charlie? Then, surprised at her husband's silence, she raised her eyes, opened wide, as pretty as pale flowers. He had done with the spurs, and, twisting his moustache with both hands horizontally, he contemplated her from the height of his long legs with a visible appreciation of her appearance. The consciousness of being thus contemplated pleased Mrs Gould. They are considerable men, he said. I know, but have you listened to their conversation? They don't seem to have understood anything they have seen here. They have seen the mine. They have understood that to some purpose, Charles Gould interjected in defence of the visitors. And then his wife mentioned the name of the most considerable of the three. He was considerable in finance and in industry. His name was familiar to many millions of people. He was so considerable that he would never have travelled so far away from the centre of his activity if the doctors had not insisted, with veiled menaces, on his taking a long holiday. Mr Holroyd's sense of religion, Mrs Gould pursued, was shocked and disgusted at the tawdriness of the dressed-up saints in the cathedral, the worship he called it of wood and tinsel. But it seemed to me that he looked upon his own God as a sort of influential partner who gets his share of profits in the endowment of churches. That's a sort of idolatry. He told me he endowed churches every year, Charlie. No end of them, said Mr Gould, marvelling inwardly at the mobility of her physiognomy. All over the country he's famous for that sort of munificence. Oh, he didn't boast, Mrs Gould declared scrupulously. I believe he's really a good man, but so stupid. A poor Tula who offers a little silver arm or leg to thank his God for a cure is as rational and more touching. He's at the head of immense silver and iron interests, Charles Gould observed. Ah, yes, the religion of silver and iron. He's a very civil man, though he looked awfully solemn when he first saw the Madonna on the staircase, who's only wood and paint but he said nothing to me. My dear Charlie, I heard those men talk among themselves. Can it be that they really wish to become, for an immense consideration, drawers of water and hewers of wood to all the countries and nations of the earth? A man must work to some end, Charles Good said vaguely. Mrs Gould, frowning, surveyed him from head to foot. With his riding breeches, leather leggings, an article of apparel never before seen in Costaguana, a Norfolk coat of grey flannel and those great flaming moustaches, he suggested an officer of cavalry turned gentleman farmer. This combination was gratifying to Mrs Gould's tastes. How thin the poor boy is, she thought. He overworks himself. But there was no denying that his fine-drawn, keen red face and his whole long-limbed, lank person had an air of breeding and distinction and Mrs Gould relented. "'I only wondered what you felt,' she murmured gently. During the last few days, as it happened, Charles Gould had been kept too busy thinking twice before he spoke to have paid much attention to the state of his feelings. But theirs was a successful match, and he had no difficulty in finding his answers. "'The best of my feelings are in your keeping, my dear,' he said lightly and there was so much truth in that obscure phrase that he experienced towards her at the moment a great increase of gratitude and tenderness. Mrs Gould, however, did not seem to find this answer in the least obscure. She brightened up delicately. 
Already he had changed his tone. But there are facts. The worth of the mine as a mine is beyond doubt. It shall make us very wealthy. The mere working of it is a matter of technical knowledge which I have, which ten thousand other men in the world have, but its safety, its continued existence as an enterprise giving a return to men, to strangers, comparative strangers, who invest money in it, is left altogether in my hands. I have inspired confidence in a man of wealth and position. You seem to think this perfectly natural, do you? Well, I don't know. I don't know why I have, but it is a fact. This fact makes everything possible, because without it I would never have thought of disregarding my father's wishes. I would never have disposed of the concession as a speculator disposes of a valuable right to a company, for cash and shares to grow rich eventually if possible, but at any rate to put some money at once in his pocket. No, even if it had been feasible, which I doubt, I would not have done so. Poor father did not understand. He was afraid I would hang on to the ruinous thing waiting for just some such chance and waste my life miserably. That was the true sense of his prohibition, which we have deliberately set aside. They were walking up and down the corridor. Her head just reached to his shoulders. His arm, extended downwards, was about her waist. His spurs jingled slightly. He had not seen me for ten years. He did not know me. He parted from me for my sake, and he would never let me come back. He was always talking in his letters of leaving Costaguana, of abandoning everything and making his escape, but he was too valuable a prey. They would have thrown him into one of their prisons at the first suspicion. His spurred feet clinked slowly. He was bending over his wife as they walked. The big parrot, turning its head askew, followed their pacing figures with a round, unblinking eye. He was a lonely man. Ever since I was ten years old he used to talk to me as if I had been grown up. When I was in Europe he wrote to me every month, ten, twelve pages, every month of my life for ten years, and after all he did not know me. Just think of it, ten whole years away, the years I was growing up into a man. He could not know me. Do you think he could? Mrs Gould shook her head negatively, which was just what her husband had expected from the strength of the argument. But she shook her head negatively, only because she thought that no one could know her child, really know him for what he was but herself. The thing was obvious, it could be felt, it required no argument. And poor Mr Gould Senior, who had died too soon to ever hear of their engagement, remained too shadowy a figure for her to be credited with knowledge of any sort whatever. No, he did not understand. In my view, this mine could never have been a thing to sell. Never. After all his misery, I simply could not have touched it for money alone, Charles Gould pursued, and she pressed her head to his shoulder approvingly. These two young people remembered the life which had ended wretchedly just when their own lives had come together in that splendour of hopeful love, which to the most sensible minds appears like a triumph of good over all the evils of the earth. A vague idea of rehabilitation had entered the plan of their life, that it was so vague as to elude the support of argument made it only the stronger. It had presented itself to them at the instant when the woman's instinct of devotion and the man's instinct of activity received from the strongest of illusions their most powerful impulse. The very prohibition imposed the necessity of success. 
It was as if they had been morally bound to make good their vigorous view of life against the unnatural error of weariness and despair. If the idea of wealth was present to them, it was only insofar as it was bound with that other success. Mrs Gould, an orphan from early childhood and without fortune, brought up in an atmosphere of intellectual interests, had never considered the aspects of great wealth. They were too remote, and she had not learned that they were desirable. On the other hand, she had not known anything of absolute want. Even the very poverty of her aunt, the Marchesa, had nothing intolerable to a refined mind. It seemed in accord with a great grief. It had the austerity of a sacrifice offered to a noble ideal. Thus, even the most legitimate touch of materialism was wanting in Mrs Gould's character. The dead man, of whom she thought with tenderness, because he was Charlie's father, and with some impatience, because he had been weak, must be put completely in the wrong. Nothing else would do to keep their prosperity without a stain on its only real, on its immaterial side. Charles Gould, on his part, had been obliged to keep the idea of wealth well to the fore, but he brought it forward as a means, not as an end. Unless the mine was good business, it could not be touched. He had to insist on that aspect of the enterprise. It was his lever to move men who had capital, and Charles Gould believed in the mine. He knew everything that could be known of it. His faith in the mine was contagious, though it was not served by a great eloquence. But businessmen are frequently as sanguine and imaginative as lovers. They are affected by a personality much oftener than people would suppose, and Charles Gould, in his unshaken assurance, was absolutely convincing. Besides, it was a matter of common knowledge to the men to whom he addressed himself that mining in Costaguana was a game that could be made considerably more than worth the candle. The men of affairs knew that very well. The real difficulty in touching it was elsewhere. Against that there was an implication of calm and implacable resolution in Charles Gould's very voice. Men of affairs venture sometimes on acts that the common judgment of the world would pronounce absurd. They make their decisions on apparently impulsive and human grounds. Very well, had said the considerable personage to whom Charles Gould, on his way out through San Francisco, had lucidly exposed his point of view. Let us suppose that the mining affairs of Sulaco are taken in hand. There would then be in it first the house of Holroyd, which is all right, then Mr Charles Gould, a citizen of Costaguana, who is also all right, and lastly the government of the Republic. So far this resembles the first start of the Atacamade nitrate fields, where there was a financing house, a gentleman of the name of Edwards, and a government, or rather two governments, two South American governments. And you know what came of it. War came of it. Devastating and prolonged war came of it, Mr Gould. However, here we possess the advantage of having only one South American government hanging around for plunder out of the deal. It is an advantage. But then there are degrees of badness, and that government is the Costaguana government. Thus spoke the considerable personage, the millionaire and dower of churches on a scale befitting the greatness of his native land, the same to whom the doctor used the language of horrid and veiled menaces. He was a big-limbed, deliberate man whose quiet burliness lent to an ample silk-faced frock-coat a superfine dignity. His hair was iron-grey, his eyebrows were still black, 
and his massive profile was the profile of a Caesar's head on an old Roman coin, but his parentage was German and Scotch and English with remote strains of Danish and French blood, giving him the temperament of a Puritan and an insatiable imagination of conquest. He was completely unbending to his visitor because of the warm introduction the visitor had brought from Europe and because of an irrational liking for earnestness and determination wherever met to whatever end directed. The Costaguana government shall play its hand for all it's worth and don't you forget it, Mr Gould. Now, what is Costaguana? It is the bottomless pit of 10% loans and other fool investments. European capital has been flung into it with both hands for years, not ours, though. We in this country know just about enough to keep indoors when it rains. We can sit and watch. Of course, some day we shall step in. We are bound to. But there's no hurry. Time itself has got to wait on the greatest country in the whole of God's universe. We shall be giving the word for everything. Industry, trade, law, journalism, art politics and religion, from Cape Horn clear over to Smith Sound and beyond, too, if anything worth taking hold of turns up at the North Pole. And then we shall have the leisure to take in hand the outlying islands and continents of the earth. We shall run the world's business, whether the world likes it or not. The world can't help it, and neither can we, I guess. By this he meant to express his faith in destiny in words suitable to his intelligence, which was unskilled in the presentation of general ideas. His intelligence was nourished on facts, and Charles Gould, whose imagination had been permanently affected by the one great fact of a silver mine, had no objection to this theory of the world's future. If it had seemed distasteful for a moment, it was because the sudden statement of such vast eventualities dwarfed almost to nothingness the actual matter in hand. He and his plans and all the mineral wealth of the Occidental province appeared suddenly robbed of every vestige of magnitude. The sensation was disagreeable, but Charles Gould was not dull. Already he felt that he was producing a favourable impression. The consciousness of that flattering fact helped him to a vague smile, which his big interlocutor took for a smile of discreet and admiring assent. He smiled quietly too, and immediately Charles Gould, with that mental agility mankind will display in defence of a cherished hope, reflected that the very apparent insignificance of his aim would help him to success. His personality and his mind would be taken up because it was a matter of no great consequence, one way or another, to a man who referred his action to such a prodigious destiny. And Charles Gould was not humiliated by this consideration, because the thing remained as big as ever for him. Nobody else's vast conception of destiny could diminish the aspect of his desire for the redemption of the San Tome mine. In comparison to the correctness of his aim, definite in space and absolutely attainable within a limited time, the other man appeared for an instant as a dreamy idealist of no importance. The great man, massive and benignant, had been looking at him thoughtfully. When he broke the short silence, it was to remark that concessions flew about thick in the air of Costaguana. Any simple soul that just yearned to be taken in could bring down a concession at the first shot. Our consuls get their mouths stopped with them, he continued with a twinkle of genial scorn in his eyes. But in a moment he became grave. 
a conscientious, upright man that cares nothing for boodle and keeps clear of their intrigues, conspiracies and factions, soon gets his passport. See that, Mr Gould? Persona non grata. That's the reason our government is never properly informed. On the other hand, Europe must be kept out of this continent, and for proper interference on our part, the time is not yet ripe, I dare say. But we here, we are not this country's government, neither are we simple souls. Your affair is all right. The main question for us is whether the second partner, and that's you, is the right sort to hold his own against the third and unwelcome partner, which is one or another of the high and mighty robber gangs that run the Costaguana government. What do you think, Mr Gould, eh? He bent forward to look steadily into the unflinching eyes of Charles Gould, who, remembering the large box full of his father's letters, put the accumulated scorn and bitterness of many years into the tone of his answer. As far as the knowledge of these men and their methods and their politics is concerned, I can answer for myself. I have been fed on that sort of knowledge since I was a boy. I am not likely to fall into mistakes from excess of optimism. Not likely, eh? That's all right. Tact and a stiff upper lip is what you'll want, and you could bluff a little on the strength of your backing. Not too much, though. We will go with you as long as the thing runs straight, but we won't be drawn into any large trouble. This is the experiment which I am willing to make. There is some risk and we will take it, but if you can't keep up your end, we will stand our loss, of course, and then we'll let the thing go. This mine can wait. It has been shut up before, as you know. You must understand that under no circumstances will we consent to throw good money after bad. Thus the great personage had spoken then, in his own private office, in a great city where other men, very considerable in the eyes of a vain populace, waited with alacrity upon a wave of his hand. And rather more than a year later, during his unexpected appearance in Sulaco, he had emphasised his uncompromising attitude with a freedom of sincerity permitted to his wealth and influence. He did this with the less reserve, perhaps, because the inspection of what had been done, and more still the way in which successive steps had been taken, had impressed him with the conviction that Charles Gould was perfectly capable of keeping up his end. This young fellow, he thought to himself, may yet become a power in the land. This thought flattered him, for hitherto the only account of this young man he could give to his intimates was, my brother-in-law met him in one of these one-horse old German towns near some mines and sent him on to me with a letter. He's one of the Costaguana Goulds, purebred Englishman, but all born in the country. His uncle went into politics was the last provincial president of Sulaco and got shot after a battle. His father was a prominent businessman in Santa Marta, tried to keep clear of their politics and died ruined after a lot of revolutions. And that's your Costaguana in a nutshell. Of course, he was too great a man to be questioned as to his motives, even by his intimates. The outside world was at liberty to wonder respectfully at the hidden meaning of his actions. He was so great a man that his lavish patronage of the purer forms of Christianity, which in its native form of church-building amused Mrs Gould, was looked upon by his fellow citizens as the manifestation of a pious and humble spirit. But in his own circles of the financial world, 
The taking up of such a thing as the San Tome mine was regarded with respect indeed, but rather as a subject for discreet jocularity. It was a great man's caprice. In the great Holroyd building, an enormous pile of iron, glass and blocks of stone at the corner of two streets, cobwebbed aloft by the radiation of telegraph wires, the heads of principal departments exchanged humorous glances which meant that they were not let into the secrets of the San Tome business. The Costaguana mail, it was never large, one fairly heavy envelope, was taken unopened straight into the great man's room, and no instructions dealing with it had ever been issued thence. The office whispered that he answered personally, and not by dictation either, but actually writing in his own hand with pen and ink, and it was to be supposed taking a copy in his own private press copy-book, inaccessible to profane eyes. Some scornful young men, insignificant pieces of minor machinery in that eleven-storey high workshop of great affairs, expressed frankly their private opinion that the great chief had done at last something silly and was ashamed of his folly. Others, elderly and insignificant, but full of romantic reverence for the business that had devoured their best years, used to mutter darkly and knowingly that this was a portentous sign, that the Holroyd connection meant by and by to get hold of the whole Republic of Costaguana, lock, stock and barrel. But in fact the hobby theory was the right one. It interested the great man to attend personally to the San Tome mine. It interested him so much that he allowed this hobby to give a direction to the first complete holiday he had taken for quite a startling number of years. He was not running a great enterprise there, no mere railway board or industrial corporation. He was running a man. A success would have pleased him very much on refreshingly novel grounds, but on the other side of the same feeling it was incumbent upon him to cast it off utterly at the first sign of failure. A man may be thrown off. The papers had unfortunately trumpeted all over the land his journey to Costaguana. If he was pleased at the way Charles Gould was going on, he infused an added grimness into his assurances of support. Even at the very last interview, half an hour or so before he rolled out of the patio, hat in hand behind Mrs Gould's white mules, he had said in Charles Gould's room, you go ahead in your own way, and I shall know how to help you as long as you hold your own. But you may rest assured that in a given case we shall know how to drop you in time. To this, Charles Gould's only answer had been, You may begin sending out the machinery as soon as you like. And the great man had liked this imperturbable assurance. The secret of it was that to Charles Gould's mind these uncompromising terms were agreeable. Like this, the mine preserved its identity, with which he had endowed it as a boy, and it remained dependent on himself alone. It was a serious affair, and he too took it grimly. Of course, he said to his wife, alluding to this last conversation with the departed guest, while they walked slowly up and down the corridor, followed by the irritated eye of the parrot, Of course, a man of that sort can take up a thing or drop it when he likes, he will suffer from no sense of defeat. He may have to give in or he may have to die tomorrow, but the great silver mine and iron interest will survive and some day will get hold of Costaguana, along with the rest of the world. They had stopped near the cage. The parrot, catching the sound of a word belonging to his vocabulary, was moved to interfere. Parrots are very human. 
Viva Costaguana, he shrieked with intense self-assertion and instantly ruffled up his feathers, assuming the air of puffed-up somnolence behind the glittering wires. And do you believe that, Charlie? Mrs Gould asked. This seems to me most awful materialism and... My dear, it's nothing to me, interrupted her husband in a reasonable tone. I make use of what I see. What's it to me whether his talk is the voice of destiny or simply a bit of claptrap eloquence? There's a good deal of eloquence of one sort or another produced in both Americas. The air of the new world seems favourable to the art of declamation. Have you forgotten how dear Avellanos can hold forth for hours here? Oh, but that's different, protested Mrs Gould, almost shocked. The allusion was not to the point. Don Jose was a dear good man who talked very well and was enthusiastic about the greatness of the San Tome mine. How can you compare them, Charles? she exclaimed reproachfully. He has suffered, and yet he hopes. The working competence of men, which she never questioned, was very surprising to Mrs Gould, because upon so many obvious issues they showed themselves strangely muddle-headed. Charles Gould, with a careworn calmness which secured for him at once his wife's anxious sympathy, assured her that he was not comparing. He was an American himself, after all, and perhaps he could understand both kinds of eloquence, if it were worth while to try, he added grimly. But he had breathed the air of England longer than any of his people had done for three generations, and really he begged to be excused. His poor father could be eloquent too, and he asked his wife whether she remembered a passage in one of his father's last letters, where Mr Gould had expressed the conviction that God looked wrathfully at these countries, or else he would let some ray of hope fall through a rift in the appalling darkness of intrigue, bloodshed and crime that hung over the Queen of Continents. Mrs Gould had not forgotten. You read it to me, Charlie, she murmured. It was a striking pronouncement. How deeply your father must have felt its terrible sadness. He did not like to be robbed. It exasperated him, said Charles Gould. But the image will serve well enough. What is wanted here is law, good faith, order, security. Anyone can declaim about these things, but I pin my faith to material interests. Only let the material interests once get a firm footing and they are bound to impose the conditions on which alone they can continue to exist. That's how your money-making is justified here in the face of lawlessness and disorder. It is justified because the security which it demands must be shared with an oppressed people. A better justice will come afterwards. That's your ray of hope. His arm pressed her slight form closer to his side for a moment. And who knows whether in that sense even the San Tome mine may not become that little rift in the darkness which poor father despaired of ever seeing. She glanced up at him with admiration. He was competent. He had given a vast shape to the vagueness of her unselfish ambitions. Charlie, she said, you are splendidly disobedient. He left her suddenly in the corridor to go and get his hat, a soft grey sombrero, an article of national costume which combined unexpectedly well with his English get-up. He came back, a riding whip under his arm, buttoning up a dogskin glove, his face reflected the resolute nature of his thoughts. His wife had waited for him at the head of the stairs, and before he gave her the parting kiss he finished the conversation. 
What should be perfectly clear to us, he said, is the fact that there is no going back. Where could we begin life afresh? We are in now for all that there is in us. He bent over her upturned face very tenderly and a little remorsefully. Charles Gould was competent because he had no illusions. The Gould concession had to fight for life with such weapons as could be found at once in the mire of a corruption that was so universal as almost to lose its significance. He was prepared to stoop for his weapons. For a moment he felt as if the silver mine which had killed his father had decoyed him further than he meant to go and with the roundabout logic of emotions he felt that the worthiness of his life was bound up with success. There was no going back. End of Part First, The Silver of the Mine, Chapter 6, Section 2